Good morning, everybody. You know, I almost thought we had a new uh, music pastor this morning. He, he shaves, and then I don't know what he looks like, you know. <laughs> hey, we're glad you're here. Um, I, should, I should make a, uh, a statement. You know, Corey, I'm Pastor Tim, and Corey prayed for me in an upcoming surgery. I feel like, oh, uh, you don't really need to pray about that. It's a very simple surgery. It's quadruple bypass surgery. It's very simple. No, it's not. I'm having shoulder surgery, and I think, uh, I think as, he prays, as he prayed for me, I thought, oh, there's people that need your prayers so much more, people in our congregation that are struggling. He mentioned Mark Saltzman, who is actually having a leg amputated on Wednesday because of cancer, and that's the way they have to deal with it. I think of Eric Ridenour. You may not know him, but he has been battling cancer as well, and and his cancer has mutated to uh, acute lymph- lymphoma, leukemia. That's what you need a wife for. I'm going lymph- lymphoma, and she's going leukemia. And uh, he's going to go through, he's up at Stanford going through um, five weeks of heavy chemo and then looking at um, bone marrow transplant, which will keep him up there another two months. So there's a lot of people need our prayers. And, and uh, thought I should mention that. Uh, this is the third week I've been preaching because Pastor John is on vacation. He is back. He is home. Uh, I told you that I would preach th- three weeks. That has now changed. I will. You got me back next week too. I, I'm back. Um, and the reason being is because we got looking at the calendar and Pastor John is set to begin a series in Revelation. Uh, and, he, and we realize that if he preaches next week and starts that series, then the following week is Father's Day and kind of breaks it up and didn't work really well. So uh, I told him I have one more idol I'd love to preach on, and he said, great, so you're going to get me back next week. So if you've been coming three weeks in a row to see Pastor John, you're going to have to come five weeks in a row to actually see him. We have been, I'd ask you to open your Bibles to uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to walk through a really interesting and kind of fun story there in 2 Kings 5 in a minute. But we've been looking at this question, who do you worship and who do you really worship? I've said each week that who we say we worship and who we really worship could be different because actually how we really live our lives is who shows who we really worship. We've been talking about idols and idol worship. Uh, idol, idol worship involves much more than just the construction of a physical idol. It's anything that we worship as a God, worship being anything we give worth to, worth-ship, anything we place above God, anything that has more worth to us than God. We've looked at two idols up to this point, self and money, and you can if you didn't hear those messages and would like to, you can go on the website. Um, today we're going to look at a third idol, and I will call it power uh, as a, just one word, but it, I, I feel like there needs to be more said about it to, make, to help us understand. When you use this term power, I think you might think influence, status, significance, wanting to, you know thinking more about yourself than you, than you should, maybe. Um, a few general thoughts about this particular idol, power, influence, status, significance, uh, and so on. It, it has a tendency to really exemplify itself in, in wicked ways. Sometimes we don't even really know that it's working. You know, we have this statement 
Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It really does. And um, you've probably been around people who have had power, influence, status, or significance and notice that they don't handle it very well. They think too much of themselves. You know, power can make people kind of crazy stupid. It really can. And sometimes when people get power or influence or status or significance, it can go to their head. I would offer one um, example to get us thinking about it. It was quite a few years ago. I was working on my bachelor's in biblical and religious studies, and I had gone to several different schools. I was actually finishing it up online, and I was going to school through Trinity College of the Bible, and they would offer periodically these things that they called regional seminars or regional classes, and it happened to have one on the West Coast that I could take advantage of, and what it was was you, you would go to this, this seminar, it was up in Modesto actually, or this class, and the way it was designed is that you would have to read so many books, you'd have to write papers, and then at the seminar or the class, you would do your classroom, your required classroom work like in a week. And so it, it, it helped some of us that were trying to complete um, our degrees. And, and also in these things, you would have people at these things that were going after a variety of degrees. Uh, some were working on bachelors, some were working on masters, PhDs. Um, the requirements were different based on what you were working for, a masters of divinity and so on and so forth. And I will never forget standing in this circle of guys um, and we were probably, I don't remember really what we were talking about, but I'm sure we were discussing something that had been presented in the class, and we were all involved in this discussion. Everybody was talking, and, and you know, it was a healthy theological discussion, if you will. And at some point, one of the guys asks one of the other guys, hey, what degree are you working on? You know, and, and, you, and then it started to go around the circle. You know, and guys were working on their masters, they were working on their PhDs, they were working on their, you know, doctorate, all those kinds of things. They were all working on different uh, degrees, and pretty soon they asked me, so Tim, you know, and I was involved in the discussion, so Tim, what degree are you working on? And I didn't think anything about it until I got the reaction. I said, oh, I'm working on a bachelor's, and I wish you could have seen those guys' faces. It was like, I mean, literally the circle moved away from me because I was just working on a bachelor's. I didn't have enough education, if you will. I'm elaborating a little bit, but I didn't have enough education to really be in that circle. And that's what it does to you. In fact, this is why in, in the Scriptures, in 1 Timothy, you have the qualifications for an elder and or for leaders in the church. And the very last qualification is he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. See, power can go to your head is what I'm saying. And so you have to be careful with that. Um, and, and we don't, those guys were all good guys. I think sometimes we don't mean to do it. It's just part of our nature and it will just rear its ugly head more often than you think. And it will cause power, influence, status, significance. It makes us want to impress people. And I'll share another quick story with you, trying to give you an idea of how it works where, where it affected me. I have a friend who's pastor of the Evangelical Free Church in Tulare. Many of you know him, Rich. Um, We've been friends for a long time. He's a weightlifter. I'm not. I was, at the time, a racquetball player. 
He wasn't. I never lifted weights with him. <laughs> had no desire to do that. Um, but he loved playing racquetball with me. And so we would pray, we would play periodically. And, you know, we'd have a good time together. And we would play at the Tulare Racquet Club, and, um, at which was there at the time. And it, like many racquetball courts, if you've ever played, there are these, all these courts. And up above is this walkway. And so people can walk and they can look over who's playing. And so we're playing one day and Rich stops me and he says, Tim, just right in the middle of the game, what? You know, I've made an observation. Okay. He said, I've noticed. He said, I don't want to make you feel bad, but I've noticed that, you know, you're clearly a better racquetball player than me. And I've noticed that when, you, when we play, you, you kind of lower your game so that we can play. But when someone walks by and they look down at us, you just kill me. <laughs> See, that's how it works, though. And I said, I am so sorry. I did not even know I was doing that. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know I was doing it. But what was I trying to do? I was trying to impress people. That's the idol. And it permeates our success-driven culture. Mary Bell in an article I read, she's a counselor who works with high-level executives, and here's what she said. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. People brag to me that they're working 80 hours a week, giving their lives to the company store, Bell says. It's heartbreaking. These people are prime candidates for self-destruction trying to strive to climb the ladder, if you will. I'm sure most of you know who Madonna is, the pop legend Madonna, whether you like her music or not, whether you like her or not. I share with you something I read that she wrote about her, su about her success and her feelings of inadequacy. Listen to what she says. I have an iron will, and all my and." All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove to myself that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. We see it in sports. We are a tournament-driven world, aren't we? I mean, you have the college football, uh, national championship series. You have college basketball and March Madness. We're in, we're in the middle of the NBA championships right now. And just watch. I think it's fascinating that you, you watch any of the commentators on the national, on the NBA championship, and, and they'll talk about LeBron James, the greatest basketball player in the world, and they'll compare him against Michael Jordan, and they'll say, who do you think's the best? And everybody will give their opinion. And I say, who cares? It's so subjective. How do you even know that? But see, it's about this being the best. You have the Super Bowl, the World Series, 
You have the Olympics. I read an article as I was preparing for this for Satellite Ski Wake and Surf on the happiness of Olympic medalists. I thought it was fascinating. When the survey was done, who do you believe was the most happy and most fulfilled of the Olympic medalists? Of course, the gold medalists, right? They were, they were happy and fulfilled. Who do you think was the second happiest? You'd think the silver medalists, wouldn't you? No, it was actually the bronze medalists. Do you know why? Because the bronze medalists would look at all the other athletes and they would think to themselves, wow, I'm glad I got a medal. But the most unhappy of all the Olympic athletes, of all the Olympic athletes, were the silver medalists. Why? Because they would think about how close they came to getting that gold medal and often would be haunted that they didn't get the gold medal. They got a silver medal in this world game, if you will. And often they struggled with it so much and some would even come back to try to get it again. And you see this all the time, this struggle to get to the top. And you see it in the Bible, folks, and you see it in the Christian life. Think about the apostles of Jesus. They walked, they were with Him, they interacted with Him, they saw how He lived His lives. They heard Him say, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And then out of the blue, this idol reared its head one day, and James and John struggle with it. Basically, what they do is kind of like what my grandchildren do when I'm taking them someplace. They call shotgun. I want to be in the front seat. That's basically what James and John does. It's recorded in Mark 10, verse 35. Let me read it to you. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I just think that's so funny. We want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can. See, that idol's still there. We can. Jesus said to them, oh, you will drink this cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. When the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. That's what idols do. They create a lot of problem in people's lives. So Jesus calls them all together. And, you know, gives them, a, gives them kind of a father-son talking to. And he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. See, that success-driven idol power is not the way we as believers are supposed to live. Let's turn to 
let's get to 2 Kings 5. We're going to work through this story here, which is a, a pretty interesting story. And like I did last week, I'm going to wa- walk through it in parts. Let me, uh, let me lay out the characters that are involved. You have Naaman. You have a servant girl. You have two kings. You have a prophet. And then there's some kind of minor people that are involved in it. Let's first look at Naaman. He comes onto the scene right in verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now notice how the author of 2 Kings lists all of Naaman's accolades. He's a commander of the army. He's a great man. He's highly regarded. He's victorious. He's a valiant soldier. And then he says, by the way, his skin's falling off. Now, Naaman, if I take just a quick side street here, Naaman's leprosy should reveal a life truth to all of us. No matter how powerful someone is, no matter how much success they have achieved, no matter, high, no matter how high they go up the ladder, whatever has gone on, no one controls life. Those are the things that are in the hands of God, and it can all pass away in the heartbeat, in a heartbeat, no matter how accomplished somebody is. So that was Naaman, and now you see the servant girl. She comes on the scene in verses 2 to 6. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, that is, the slave girl said to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, which according to my research is about 750 pounds of silver, just to give you an idea, 6,000 shekels of gold, which is 150 pounds of gold, ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel said, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you that you may cure him. So look at what Naaman does. He takes a bunch of money and clothes and a a, a, a letter from the teacher, if you will, the king. And you might ask yourself, why did he do all that? Because that's not what he was told to do. The servant girl, the servant girl told him to see the prophet, not the king. So why would he go to the king? Because I think he's got that, that idol of power, significance, influence on the throne. And in his worldview, the powerful go to the powerful. The king is as high as you can go. The prophet, I'm guessing, was not high enough on the food chain. He was below Naaman. Now, when he goes to the king... 
and takes all this to the king, listen to that king's response, the king of Israel. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. I think the king was kind of dramatic, actually. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction to me. And it seems like there was something else going on, you know, that, that somehow he saw that as, a, as an attack on his kingdom, like Naaman's trying to pick a fight with him, and I'm not sure about all that. But what I do know, it's interesting to me that the king gets right to the heart of the problem. Only God can fix something like this. This is not something that a powerful man can fix. Power, money, prestige, a note from the king has no power to kill or to make alive. And the king's, reaction may, or the king's uh, reaction may have been a little bit of an overreaction, but he did have the right perspective. In essence, he was saying, I'm just a king. I'm just the ruler of the country. Oh, yes, I'm powerful in earthly ways, but that doesn't mean anything in regard to the universe. It doesn't have that kind of power. That is only God who has that power. So now let's enter the prophet Elisha, verses 8 to 10. Now listen very carefully. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. In other words, he and his whole entourage came to the Elisha's house. Now listen to what happens. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. If you pay attention, it's very interesting that Elisha does not come to the door to meet Naaman. He sends a servant to the door. He's not impressed by Naaman. He doesn't invite Naaman in. He doesn't make a big, you know, have a bunch of hoopla. He doesn't ask for an autograph or something like that. And Naaman's ticked. Look at his response in verses 11 and 12. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he, speaking of Elisha, would surely come to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. And then he continues, are not Abanya and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Couldn't I wash them in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went away in a rage. It's a perfect example of the power or the pride of power. Naaman's got a life-ending disease. And he, the only way he knows, the only option that he know of, knows of to get that healed is Elisha or the prophet. And when that person tells him what to do, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And I, I, I admit I'm reading between the lines, but it's like, that's beneath me. Don't you know who I am? Even that river is beneath me. And he puts, he's put off because Elisha didn't pay him the respect that he thought he was due. Why was it so hard for him? Easy, it's an easy answer because his entire worldview was being challenged. 
He wants to control the situation. He's the one that's a person of prominence. But as, you, as we all know, no one controls God because no one can earn merit or achieve their own blessing or salvation. And to him, Elisha's message was an insult. You could imagine him thinking like, any idiot, any child could do what he's asked me to do. Any child could go down and paddle around in the Jordan. That takes no ability, no attainment at all. I mean, come on, Elisha, don't you know who I am? Now, that's not there, but I imagine that's kind of what was going on. And now, take Naaman's attitude and contrast that attitude with the servant girl. It's fascinating. We don't even know her name. Her name is not recorded. But we do know that she's a captive of Naaman. She works for Naaman's wife. She's a slave. We don't know much about her except that she was abducted and enslaved by the very man she was trying to help. She's at the bottom of the social system. She's a slave. In that culture, the bottom of the, of the social system, she's a woman. She's young. Some think between the age of 10 to 14. Her life has been ruined, it could be argued. And whose fault would it be? Naaman. And normally when someone is beaten down like that, they will respond with rage, bitterness, but she doesn't. Why? Because she has the right God on the throne. She shows empathy and concern for her slave master. Remember what she said? If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, thankfully, thankfully for Naaman's sake, he had other servants who were smart enough to talk him out of his power trip. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Now, I'm sure they didn't say it like this, but it's like, dude, think about what you're doing here. It's not that hard. All he's asked you to do is get in the river. What's the problem? Well, if I could take another quick side street, I would ask us all the same thing. What's the problem? Why is it so hard for us to do the things that God has asked us to do? You know, Jesus told all of us to get in the river. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, He says, be baptized. And you'd be surprised the excuses we hear from people. It's not that hard. Get in the river. And the excuses we hear for people not wanting to do that. I don't like being up in front of people. It scares me. You don't look that scary to me, just for the record. But they say it's scary. Jesus said, if you're not willing to confess me before men, I'm not willing to confess you before the Father. Well, you don't understand. It's kind of hard for me. You know, I had a man years ago, some of you may remember, he had never been baptized. And the reason he hadn't been baptized was because he had a prosthetic leg. And he said, I, 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 I asked him why he hadn't been baptized. He said, I, I was, I'm afraid it would freak out the people. No, it won't. Well, I don't know if I can get, I don't know if I can even get down in the baptismal. I said this to him, and maybe it's, maybe it's me struggling with pride, but I said, come on, look at me. I can get you down into that baptismal. <laughs> and so he said, okay. So we walked him out. He stopped right at the baptismal. We helped him. He took his leg off and laid it off on the side. And then we brought him down into the baptismal, and we baptized him, and he came back out. 
Do you think the congregation was freaked out? No, they loved it. They loved it. Get in the river, folks, if you have not been baptized. Let's go back to the story. Finally, though, Naaman gets it. Verse 14 and 15. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, that would be Elisha. He stood before him and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. There is no God except the God of creation, the one and only. All other gods are false. Please accept now a gift from your servant. His power trip is over, and he realizes that he isn't as important as he thought. He knows who the real God is, and he knows that he isn't him. The question is, do we know who the real God is, and do we worship Him? Who do you worship? Who do you really worship? Listen, this idol functions all the time. Those of us that are up front, we fight it because we want, we want to worship the Lord. We want to accurately proclaim the Word of God, but we want people to like us. And in reality, we shouldn't be worried about that. We ought to be worried about the Word of God going forth. And most who are up front, at least those that are in our church that I know of, have the right attitude, but it's always working. It's that attitude, it's that idol that causes a pastor to want to have a parking place in the front right by the next to the church that says, pastor's parking, pastor's wife's parking. Come on. We don't park right up front because we're not that important. But that's how it works. It's functioning all the time. We're going to take communion here in a moment. If you're, if you're going to serve communion, you can go get ready at this time. I want to say something while they are getting prepared. We were created by the Lord. We all know that, right? And He created us to worship Him. There is really only two ways to go. He created us to worship Him, but we can choose to worship other idols. 1 John 5, 20 and 21 says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then it says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And I want to point something out to to us, and that is that we were created to worship the Lord. And when we are worshiping the Lord, that is the best way to live. And even people who don't know the Lord, they were created to worship the Lord as well. And people who don't worship the Lord, that's a rough life. We were created to worship, not to worship other gods. We were created to worship the true God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way can say it much better than I just did. God made us, and He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel of our spirits, the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. 
That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about Him. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from His self because it is not there. And life is a struggle when we are worshiping any, anybody other than the Lord Himself. I will remind you as we prepare for communion the words of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield who wrote The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I've read it two weeks in a row and now three. One very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory and my mind is an excuse-making factory. As we prepare for communion, this may be one of the most significant times in the life of the church because we get to take a moment and we get to evaluate or think about what Jesus did on the cross for us, and we then think about the sins in our lives that He saved us from, and we have a moment to stop, be quiet, and think about that and confess our sins to Him. That ought to be a daily thing, but right now I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. But before we do that, I want to tell you, if you're a visitor here at Grace Community Church, communion, taking of the bread and the cup is for all believers. You don't need to be a part of our church. You don't need to be a member of our church to take communion with us. It's for all believers. You are welcome to take of the, the bread and the cup together. So I'm going to take a moment and let us be silent, and I'm going to let you talk to the Lord, and then we will enjoy communion together. You know, there was once someone, <clears throat> excuse me, once someone made a comment about me and they said, Tim is one of the most competitive guys I have ever known. Just last week, joking, I was joking, but talking about having my shoulder surgery, I said 50% of me is better than 100% of most. And you know, you gotta be careful because we can elevate ourselves unintentionally very quickly. That's the pride of power. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and He said, this is a symbol of my blood that I will shed for you. Never forget, drink. Please pass your cups to the nearest aisle. These servants will come up and collect them from you. I will remind you at the end of the service, there will be ushers at the door um, to collect our deacon's offering. Those monies, it's for free to you to give to or not, it's up to you, but we use those monies for the, to give to people in our church and outside of our church. I told you, about what I said about my shoulder, you know, 50% of me is better than 100% of most. I, I tell you that because this idol is one I struggle with. And that's, and, and it, 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 we need to continually evaluate. This idol might not be one that you struggle with. There might be others. But make no mistake, idols are always vying to take you away from the Lord. 
and we need to evaluate. Let's stand and I'll pray for you and for me. Father, we are so aware of the ways we fall short. And we pray, Lord, we're grateful that you died on the cross to forgive us of those sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we go out into this world that needs to have the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that that often is seen through the way we live our lives. And we pray that you would help us with that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.